0: colors, I'm reminded of one hallmark of my childhood, and that being apple pie when the fall season comes around. And if any of you know my mom, you know that it wasn't just any old apple pie, it was award-winning apple pie. So we'd go over to the Beasley's Orchard over in Avon, and we'd carefully select our apples, making sure we got the right ones, and then she'd bake a masterpiece. And I came to learn that there are few joys in the world like an incredible apple pie. You've got that aroma filling the house. The apple juices start to bubble up when you look in on the oven and see how, it, how it's doing. There's that slight crunch of the, the flaky crust, and then you take a bite, and those apples have been cooked to perfection and just melt in your mouth. Add in a scoop of vanilla ice cream, and you might as well be in heaven. Can I get an amen? Yeah, that's right. Who said Baptists won't respond to the preacher? (laughs) Well, one year we discovered over at Beasley's that they had an apple pie contest. And uh, so my mom entered, and she won the thing. And now I found out that not only was there the joy in picking the apples, seeing her make the pie, enjoying it, but you could get money for the thing. Well, I was intrigued, so I wanted to learn. And one of the things that she started to teach me is you have specific ingredients that you have to get right. Maybe that's the science of it. But there's a specific process you have to follow as well. And if you get the right ingredients with the right process, that's the key to maximizing the joy. And so the way my mom did it, she taught me how to make the lattice top to the crust. And uh, it looked super confusing until she explained it. I'm like, oh, wow, I I can do that. And it was really fun. Uh, You get the cinnamon, the sugar topping on it. There's a little glaze that you get when you beat the egg yolks together. And then you put that and it kind of makes the whole thing shine just a little bit. But the most important part of the process, at least for this contest, was that you get up really early in the morning. You've not baked the cake the night before. you finish the last few touches in the morning. You bake it that morning. And so when you get to the 8 a.m. delivery of your, uh, your pie for this contest, the thing is fresh out of the oven, and it's still warm, and it's, th- that was kind of the key to winning, she told me. And you think about it for a second. You're looking at two pies on this table, getting ready to be judged by the, the judges, And they may have the exact same ingredients in them, and yet one stands out above the other. It's not even close. What's the difference? The process that was used in making this thing that the juices are still kind of bubbling and the the aroma is still coming up in a strong way and it's still warm when the judges take their bite. What's, What's the difference? It's not the ingredients, it's the process that was used. Now, if I connect this to 1 Timothy chapter 3 just a little bit of how, what Sarah was, was reading a moment ago, it was last week that we were looking at pastoral qualifications. Those might be the ingredients of the pie, you might say. But today we're looking at how pastors ought to function as a team, sort of seeing the process to be used to maximize joy for both the pastors themselves and the church as they serve. And if the goal was merely technical pre- precision, then the right ingredients could be enough but the goal of an apple pie and being committed to a local church is similar in that the goal is great joy not just technical precision and so the process and how we function actually matters quite a bit 1st timothy 3 says a little about these functions but we're also in part three of this sermon, and I, I told you last week I was trying not to get to part four, and we're actually going to get to stop this week at part three, and we'll move on to uh, the next passage next week. But we'll pull, for, pull from some other New Testament passages giving us direction on what is this function supposed to look like within the local church. And there, there's one thing I'll note before I give you my main idea is this. Sometimes the path to joy that God intends for us is a little counterintuitive. It's not exactly what we'd expect just like getting up at five in the morning to go bake this pie wasn't the funnest thing we'd ever heard of, it was a critical step in that path to maximizing joy. We just kind of tuck that away. Of sometimes the path to joy is a little counterintuitive, it's important for us to recognize. Now, here's the main idea I want you to hear this morning from this sermon and from 1 Timothy 3, that pastors serve the church by helping them pursue deep joy in Christ. Pastors serve the church by helping them pursue deep joy in Christ. I do want to double down on that word joy for just a moment before we get into our outline, because I believe that joy is the superpower for the Christian life. And as I say that, I recognize that many of you may say, Justin, I don't really feel much joy today. In fact, if I'm honest about it, I don't feel a whole lot of joy most days. But I want you to know, friends, that God desires joy for you. Prophet Nehemiah wrote that the joy of the Lord was his strength. Hebrews chapter 12, we read, what is it that actually strengthened Jesus to go to the cross and fulfill the mission that God had given him? It says it was for the joy that was set before him. Jesus' own words, we see on the screen here, John 15 and verse 11, he says this, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. We look at a couple of other passages. We see that the pastors in the New Testament are working for the joy of those who are in those churches. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 25, Paul wrote, I will remain and continue with all for your progress and your joy in the faith. There's two reasons I'm going to stick around. He says, I want to see you grow in your faith, and I want to see you have joy in your faith. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24, Paul would again write, he says, not that we're lording this over your faith, but we're working with you for your joy, for you to stand firm in your faith. Park said, I want you to know, you bring me great joy. It was, I had so much joy yesterday looking around the park on mulch day, seeing a hundred people running around with wheelbarrows and pitchforks and shovels and rakes, like a whole bunch of ants on an anthill, just actively getting after it together. It was a beautiful thing. It brought me great joy this morning to sit in here at nine o'clock for our prayer service, to see young people and old people. Men and women reading from God's word, quotings from God's word, bringing requests to the Lord. It was a beautiful thing. You bring me great joy. When there's new people at church and I try to go meet them. But every time I go, somebody else is already meeting them and greeting them and I'm not going to go interrupt your conversation. And So it's the third week somebody comes before I can actually get there and greet them. There are so many ways you bring me great joy. I love you. And I want you to know, as I read these things in the New Testament, like I see these things being worked out in the life of our church. But I also have fears as a pastor. And one of the fears that I have is this idea of joy maybe gets minimized a little, gets lost a little, and you come to church and you are here week in, week out, and end up leaving with nothing more than a few doctrinal notes on your note sheet few spirituality hacks, religious to-do list over there. And none of those things are terribly bad in their own right. But I know this. When your life falls apart and things go off the rails, when you get a diagnosis you weren't expecting, when your kids aren't responding the way they're supposed to, whether they're 2 or 22, religious to-do lists aren't going to carry you. Finding joy in Jesus' will. Finding joy in his church will carry you. And being in community and serving with those who find joy in the Lord, even when you're struggling to find joy in the Lord, those things will carry you. Joy matters deeply for the Christian life. Jesus intends that joy for us. And so as Jesus is the chief shepherd and desires your joy, for us to serve as under shepherds means we must be actively seeking your joy as well. That's how we move forward in the Christian life. So how specifically do pastors serve the church by helping them pursue deep joy in Christ? How exactly does that happen? Let me suggest three ways pastors ought to do that. They should lead the church... With humble conviction. They should feed the church with healthy nutrients, and they should intercede for the church with heavenly priorities. Lead, feed, intercede with a few qualifiers to come after. Let's start with pastors should lead with humble conviction. Lead with humble conviction, and I will spend probably more time here than on the other two points, so if I, you think I'm spending a long time, it's because I am, and I've not lost sight of the clock, I promise Pastors were told are overseers of Christ's church. If you've got your copy of the scriptures open, 1 Timothy 3, verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, manager, leader of Christ's church, it's what it means to be a pastor, to lead God's church with conviction, pastors must recognize they are appointed by God to do that. Paul, when he was writing in Acts 20, told the, the pastors of the church of Ephesus, the Holy Spirit. Has made you overseers. Now the church affirmed them, but it wasn't the church vote that made them overseers, the Holy Spirit that did that. In Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to be sent out. And what we read in Acts 13 is the brothers and sisters were together, they were worshiping the Lord, they were fasting. And while they were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me these brothers to lead the church. So, as a pastor, that's a critical thing to recognize because when you have a divine appointment from the Lord, it will put steel in your spine to keep going and serving well. But there's a convictional nature to leadership. It's not just that God has appointed you, but there is a God who has spoken and it is my responsibility to not come up with my own things to say, but to open this book and explain it to be God's mouthpiece with convictional truth that God has spoken. He is not silent in our day. He's not left us alone trying to figure out what in the world we're supposed to do. He's left us with a mission that pastors convictionally lead and that we are to go make disciples. And if somebody says, I'm following Jesus, but not helping others follow Jesus, then it's my responsibility to say, I'm not sure what you mean by following Jesus then. Because disciples make disciples. We need convictional leadership from pastors to say, yes, there is a real eternal destination for every single soul. Heaven is a real and glorious place that you can be if you'll trust in Jesus' death on the cross to pay for your sins and bring you back into relationship with God. And hell is a real place for those who will not submit to King Jesus, who insist on doing things their own way. And friends, when you have conviction from leadership in God's church to open his word and explain it, you'll find as the church historian, Justin Martyr, some 1,800 years ago said to the Roman emperor as he tried to kill off the Christians, here's what Justin Martyr said. He said, emperor, you can kill us, but you cannot harm us because Jesus is on the throne. And the church finds deep joy in knowing that Jesus is king. But on the flip side, when conviction is absent in leadership, joy will certainly be gone. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever been in a meeting been in a meeting that was, let's just say, adrift. You have been in one of those? Yeah, there's the next amen. Nothing saps your joy like a meeting that's gone adrift when the leader does not have conviction on why we're there, what's going to be said, how we're going to get anything accomplished, and most importantly, how we're going to get out of it. Right? There's no joy in that room because there's not convictional leadership on where we're supposed to go. Well, it's not just conviction that we need from pastors. There's also a humility, right? We said lead with humble conviction. If you leave out that humble word, you can get towards domineering leadership that uses convictional as a cover for it, right? And we've seen that get sideways. So humble, convictional leadership starts with a recognition, 1 Peter 5, that Jesus is the chief shepherd and every other pastor in all the universe is an under-shepherd. The real lead pastor of this church is, Jesus, and all the rest of us are under shepherds. It's as if you imagine a very long steel chain, and Jesus is the first and the last, the alpha and the omega, and every other pastor along the way is just meant to connect to the next chain, to connect to the next one, to connect to the next one. Not to reinvent the wheel, not to do anything terribly novel, but to take timeless truths and boldly proclaim them in a timely way. There's an analogy from baseball that now that the World Series is over, I'll go back to. And if you don't love baseball, I'm sorry, but you'll just have to bear with me. Baseball teams take their best pitchers and they make them to start the game. And they're supposed to throw six or seven innings. And then their next best pitchers, they make the ones at the very end. They call them the closer. And then they're pitchers that are just kind of mediocre, they put in the middle. And their job is if, you, if, we're, if we're up two to nothing. The guy who comes in in the sixth inning is sometimes called a middle reliever, middle relief pitchers. His job is to get to the seventh inning with us still up two to zero. That's your job. Just get three guys out, and we'll get somebody else in there. Recognizing that Jesus is the chief shepherd from a pastoral standpoint means we all recognize we're just middle relievers. There's another guy coming, maybe in five years, maybe in 25 years. And we're supposed to hand the ball to him saying, yes, Jesus is still on the throne and his mission is still moving forward and we'll still be making disciples. He is the first, he's the last, and we're just here in the middle. And because the chief shepherd is infinite and limitless and needs nothing, it's liberating because it doesn't mean he actually needs us, although he does choose to use us. But since under shepherds are not like the chief shepherd, they do have limits. They're not self-sufficient. It means that we need a team. We can't do it alone like Jesus can. We're not cut out for his job description. And so it's interesting that when the New Testament talks about pastoral leadership, it almost always talks about pastors in the plural, implying, hey, there's a team of leaders that God intends for his church. Let me show you just a couple of these passages. Acts 14, verse 23. They had appointed elders for them in every church. Not elder singular and elder, elders plural. Or Philippians 1.1, Paul would write, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers, that being the pastors, and the deacons, plural in both of those. Or 1 Timothy 4, verse 14, Paul writes to Timothy, Hey Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders, plural, laid their hands on you. Or Titus chapter one and verse five, this is why I left you in Crete. So that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. You see, biblical church leadership demands, it requires there be a team of pastors. Maybe you've heard someone say a plurality of elders. It's the same idea. And anytime you go to a team model, use a plurality, we know that it's not going to be the most efficient way of getting somewhere. It's not going to be the fastest way of getting somewhere. But if we're seeking effectiveness in long-term health and preservation of the gospel, it is God's designed way that we would get there. That old adage is true, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Pastor and author Dave Harvey comments on it this way. He says, for people with unique talents... And unusual qualities, collaboration may feel less like a gift for greater mission effectiveness and more like a restrictor plate on a NASCAR engine. In fact, it may well be meant to slow you down, but your speed is less important to God than how you race. The quality of your elder plurality determines the health of your church. And we understand from a divine standpoint, it's the Holy Spirit that determines the health of the church. But from a human standpoint, we understand that a healthy pastoral team is massively influential in establishing the health of the church. So we ask ourselves, if pastors are to lead with humble conviction within a team, what exactly are the joys that God intends for his church from a team of pastors leading? Let me suggest three of them that are both joys for the pastors and joys for the church that we're all supposed to recognize. Number one, there's the joy of diverse gifting. There's the joy of diverse gifting, where you recognize some brothers are going to be more gifted as preachers, some are going to be more gifted in mercy, some are going to be more gifted in wisdom or administration or leadership or counseling, and everybody's got their own blind spots. And so the diverse gifting enables there to be more joy based on the needs of any particular season. Does this mean, therefore, that there shouldn't be a a lead pastor, one guy who's kind of leading the charge, a first among equals, you might say, a leader of leaders? No, that's not what that means. It doesn't undercut it. In fact, we have biblical precedent for the equivalent of a lead pastor. Right, The Lord Jesus seemed to give special authority to Peter to lead the church. It seems from Acts 15 or maybe other passages that James was the leader of the Jerusalem church. It seems that it, this church in Ephesus, Timothy was the leader. In churches in Crete, Titus was the lead pastor appointing other pastors there as well. So there's, there's good reason for that. So, my job then, as the first among equals, leader of leaders, to lean into the diverse gifting on the pastoral team is to cast vision and clarify hey, here's where we're going, but to lean on the whole team to clarify the vision, to see bumps along the way, to see potholes we need to avoid, to see ditches that we might easily get ourselves into. And sometimes the whole team of pastors is coming along saying, Justin, we need to hit the gas and actually speed up a little more here. You're being too cautious. And other times they come along and say, hey, let's actually pump the brakes a little bit. We're, we're getting out in front of our skis a little bit here. And other times we're all discussing where the Lord may be leading us. And it's like we need to pull off at a rest stop and just take a few minutes to pray and look at the map and make sure, is this actually where we're supposed to be going? There was a time, probably within the last year or so, we came to a fairly strategic decision and my vote was in the minority vote. And so I said, hey, Like we always say, I will submit myself to the the rest of the pastoral team. Let's seek the Lord in prayer and determine the best way that we ought to go forward. I don't see that as a problem. I see that as a strength of a pastoral team. If you've read anything by Pat Lencioni, he was five dysfunctions of the team. A fear of conflict demonstrates a dysfunctional team. Trusting one another enables us to lean into that and say there's wisdom here. There's strength here. But without this diverse gifting, the first joy, we know that our blind spots will overtake us, and eventually it's a matter of time until that joy evaporates. Diverse gifting is a great joy we're to experience. Here's the second joy, the division of labor. Division of labor. I want to pull on an Old Testament principle here. Exodus 18, we find extremely gifted man, Moses, trying to do way too much work, and his father and law comes along, It's like, dude, you're not going to be able to do all this you got to get some other people involved because you're going to burn yourself out. The vision of labor is a great joy. And over the last 50, 60 years or so, I think the American church has leaned into corporate models of a CEO leadership style. And they're starting to come to roost with some of the, the burnout patterns we're seeing as no one man is supposed to be able to do all of this work. In fact, a study from Barna I saw not too long ago said that nearly half of American pastors gave serious consideration to resignation within the last year. And one of the main reasons they say it is burnout due to isolation. There's not a division of labor with a team working alongside there. And that's part of the reason that we're striving to operate as a pastoral team here at Parkside. We have a good team in place. Like we talked about in the prayer meeting this morning, We've got the uh, sabbatical plan for our staff pastors, where we just propose for lay pastors serving for five years and then stepping off for at least a year. We recognize there's other brothers to come alongside to divide the labor, and we can rest knowing the mission will go forward and souls will be well cared for. Sometimes we get questions on this division of labor how does this staff pastor, lay pastor thing work? What exactly does that mean? Think of it this way. They have the same office, staff and lay pastors, with a different function. Same office, lead, feed, intercede. That's what all pastors are called to do. But functionally, if I've got 40 or 50 or 60 hours to give to the work in a given week, whereas a lay pastor may have 10 hours, it's understandable how the function will simply look different. But it's important as a church we'd be seeking to strengthen that team, to install spiritually qualified men. So the church can receive better shepherding and better care, to have enhanced protection against conflict of interest and certain financial matters. There's a division of labor that's a joy to the whole church. And you may not see it all the time. It's it's almost like an alternator on a car. You don't really see it and experience the joy of it until you take it away and see things kind of get sideways. You're like, boy, I wish we had the joy of a good working alternator right now. That's how a healthy pastoral team is supposed to work. Let me give you one third and final joy. So we said, diverse gifting is a joy, division of labor is a joy. Third, defense of spiritual health. Defense of spiritual health. Recognize there's strength in numbers here. Acts 20, 28, Paul would write to the elders, the church of Ephesus, and listen to what Paul would say. He said this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. It says, part of your job is to defend the spiritual health here, protect the flock, protect each other, and a strong pastoral team allows that protection to take place. If the chief shepherd, Jesus, is the one who leaves the 99 to pursue the one, he's not waiting for the one to come back, he's not waiting for the one to get his act together, he's not waiting for the one to get all spiritualized, get their Sunday face on him, he's chasing the one down. Is that not also what these under shepherds should do to be pursuing and chasing down and not just pursuing the lost sheep but caring for one another because we can't stand here as pastors and talk about growing through relationships and culture of discipleship and confessing sins to God and each others and then somehow exempt ourselves from that like that applies to all you but not to me that doesn't work Pastors are sheep before they are shepherds. They're church members before they're church leaders. And In a strong pastoral team, there's care for one another. So one of the things we do in our pastors' meetings, the first bit, we read Scripture together, and then we take probably 30 to 40 minutes to pray for one another and confess sin to one another, recognizing that the danger of sin in our own life is real and present, and Satan desperately wants to take us down. All of this is under the first point, pastors lead with humble conviction. It means we're submitting to one another. It forces humility when I'm so sure I'm right, or someone else is so sure they're right, or someone else is so sure they're right, but the others don't see it that way. But it also inspires conviction because when we make a decision together, we're confident That we sought the Lord first, we've paused, we've seen where he wants us to lead, and we've got a whole group of guys working to protect from each other's blind spots. And it allows us to lead with humble conviction. That brings us to the second way that pastors help the church pursue joy in Christ. They feed with hearty nutrients. Yes, lead with humble conviction, but two, feed with hearty nutrients. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the dominant competency for pastors says they're able to teach. That's verse 2. But if you would keep your copy of God's Word open and just let your eyes fall down to verse, or chapter 4, rather, notice the centrality of teaching in the coming chapter. Chapter 4, verse 6, Paul writes, put these things before the brothers, presumably by teaching them. 4.11, command and teach these things. Chapter 4, verse 13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching, Chapter 4, verse 16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. You see, above all, to feed the church with hearty nutrients means that you're preaching the Bible week in and week out. It means that pastors must not use the Bible like a national anthem, something that starts the game and then isn't needed after it. We're continually anchoring ourselves in God's word. And when we talk about expositional preaching, what we simply mean by that is that the point of the passage is the point of the sermon, that God sets the agenda, and it safeguards ourselves from me getting onto my own hobby horses, or in the words of Acts 20, that we're teaching the whole counsel of God, not just the parts that seem relevant to me today. It's been said that expositional preaching is not so much a style of preaching, but a belief about God's word that is lived out. That his word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's breathed out by God, and every single word is good for us. Consider what Paul would say in 2 Timothy chapter four and verse one. He says, "I charge you, Timothy, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word." But can you give a stronger charge than that? I mean, imagine imagine looking somebody in the eye over lunch today and saying these words. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, and by his kingdom. That's a pretty strong charge, right? What comes next? Preach the word. Not your own opinions, not your own politics, not some other random thing that seems interesting today. Open the Bible and explain it. John 21, resurrected Jesus, looks Peter in the eye, says, feed my lambs, tend for my sheep. And he comes back a third time and says, feed my sheep. Pastors must feed with hearty nutrients. Now, er, earlier this morning, I referenced Nehemiah saying, the joy of the Lord is his strength. That's in Nehemiah 8.10. The context of that is, is very fascinating. It's actually tied to feeding with hearty nutrients. So Nehemiah 8 is this sort of sorrowful context where there's Weeping and sorrow over how they've not done what they're supposed to do and things aren't looking so promising right now. And if you'd go back and read, maybe this afternoon would be good to look up Nehemiah 8 through 10, just three verses right there. Nehemiah 8, 8, they open up the Bible, they read it, and it says the leaders gave the sense and explained it so that people understood what was meant. And then it goes on how people were, were mourning a little bit in verse 9. And then verse 10, it comes back and says, No, but we've fed you with God's word. You know who he is. Therefore, even in trying circumstances, difficult circumstances, where you're mourning right now, the joy of the Lord is my strength, says Nehemiah. That context is not on the happy days. It's recognizing that when we are fed with hearty nutrients, the joy of the Lord can be our strength. And if I'll go back to something else I said earlier, Remember when I said the path to joy is sometimes counterintuitive? It is in these moments that is so important for us. When joy seems fleeting, when sorrow seems surpassing, and all I can see, we recognize for the joy of the Lord to be my strength, to carry me in the Christian walk, I need to be fed in God's word by hearty nutrients, even when I don't really want it. we got to recognize, not only in a positive sense there, but when we feed our physical and spiritual body with unhealthy nutrients, it does damage our body. I was talking to Pastor Casey this week, and he was referencing a time that Emily was out of town, and as is often the case when mom leaves and dad feeds, sometimes you get a higher dosage of fruit snacks and Cheez-Its and all the other junk foods, and all of a sudden, when you go to change those diapers, you're gifted with an interesting kind of present, Now, you're feeding, but not necessarily with healthy nutrients, and it's not good for your body. And the same is true of us spiritually. So whether you're at this church or any other church, you ought to be asking myself, what is the main dish that I'm being fed? Is the main dish the Word of God, where the pastor maybe adds some seasonings on it? But good seasonings don't overwhelm the meat, they bring out the flavor of the meat, this is the nutrients. Or or does the pastor lean on the word of God like he leans on a cane, where the pastor is? I'm getting there and the word is useful for me to help me get where I'm going. I'm kind of the main point and the word is my crutch. I go there when I have to. It's a huge, huge difference. And this feeding with hearty nutrients is actually enabled not only by a strong pastoral team and a congregation that demands that the word of God be preached, but also by a healthy team of deacons serving. Right in Acts chapter 6, we read that there were tangible needs not being met. Deacons step in and serve, say, pastors, we want you to prioritize the ministry of the word and prayer. And so when you have deacons doing what they're supposed to do, it allows the pastors to focus on what they're supposed to do. We say here that deacons serve as servants and shock absorbers to meet tangible needs and promote unity in the church. But they also, also much, must grasp the gospel and understand that in meeting tangible needs, there's often opportunity in the moment to speak the truth of the gospel into these lives. Now look at verse 9 of 1 Timothy 3. The dominant thing for deacons is that they're servants, but verse 9 talks about their need to grasp the gospel. Here's what it says, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. So as they're meeting spiritual needs, they're holding the mystery of the faith, they're seeing people and saying, here's an opportunity to speak the truth of God's word into this situation, and friends, let me tell you, this is not something that should be restricted merely to pastors or to deacons, but to every single member of God's church. As you're seeking to do good to everyone, especially the household of faith Galatians 6:10, you're also seeking to say, how can I speak the truth of God's word into this situation at my kid's daycare or while I'm watching Monday night football or while I'm out running a half marathon? How can I speak the truth of God's word into this situation? I'll tell you, we had a scenario maybe a year and a half ago, two years ago, I forget exactly when, uh, but one of our deacons heard of some false teaching that was trying to infiltrate its way through the church, and they came to the pastors and said, hey, I've been hearing kind of rumblings along these ways, I don't know if it's a big thing or not, but I think you should be aware. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. I'm holding the mystery of the faith, seeking to be a shock absorber and a servant, brought a concern to pastors, we went, we were able to investigate, see what was going on, to confront The false teaching and preserve that we're being fed with a healthy diet of God's word. I praise God for our deacons. They do a great job here, and they have a key role in the whole church being fed with healthy nutrients. I hope you're starting to get the picture then that pastors and deacons, it's not like a two house system to the Congress. You need get a vote through here and then a vote through there. It's like, no, that, that, that's, that's how America does government. That's fine, but that's not how God's church is governed. It's a different system altogether. My opening illustration this morning was that of apple pie. Starts to make you hungry to think about it, right? Brings great joy. There's a similarity here to this second point. When you're fed with hearty nutrients, there is joy in following Jesus. And when all of us cease to be fed with hearty nutrients... Everybody knows what it is to be hangry. We don't like ourselves that way. We don't like our friends that way. We don't like our parents or our kids that way. You're not you when you're hungry, they say. And they're right. Pastors must feed with hearty nutrients. That brings us to our third way that pastors help the church pursue joy in Christ. Yes, they lead with humble conviction. Yes, they feed with hearty nutrients. But they also intercede with heavenly priorities. They lead, they feed, they intercede. And the intercession is with heavenly priorities. You see, prayer is one of the greatest acts of both humility and of faith that any of us can take, because it takes the truth that Jesus is the chief shepherd, and it takes action based on that truth, saying, he's the one that's actually going to act here. And shepherding like Jesus means leading like Jesus. And one of the things we know about Jesus, he was often withdrawing to pray, Now, you think about the irony of that for a moment. The God of the universe comes down in human flesh and withdraws to pray. Now, if I'm one of the disciples, I'm thinking like, Jesus, you are God. Why exactly do you need to go pray here? It's certainly not because he's lacking, but leaving us as an example of this is a critical aspect of tending for God's flock. And if you simply move your way through Luke's gospel— Let me give you a brief over here. Luke 3, Jesus prays before he's baptized. Luke 4, he prays before a busy day. Luke 5, he has a huge turnout at his revival meetings, and he leaves the crowds to go pray. Luke 6, he spends an entire night praying outside before he calls his disciples to follow him. Luke 9, he invites the disciples onto a mountaintop prayer retreat before he's transfigured. the disciples start to get the picture by chapter 11 of Luke's gospel. Like, Jesus, you keep praying all the time. You should teach us how to do that. He's there saying, well, what took you so long? All throughout, you read this example of Jesus. He's praying for his people, praying for his people, praying for his people, and exhorting us to do the same. It doesn't take that long when you consider the scope of the needs of the church to recognize. You'd better pray about this, pastor, because it's greater than what your skill set has. But there is a chief shepherd who can meet the needs. But it's more than there's a lot of work because what is the goal that we've been talking about? That there be joy in following Jesus? Joy is not something that I can produce, nor is it something you can produce, but it is something the Holy Spirit can produce. So we must commit ourselves to prayer here. What does this look like? When our services, we try to model many different kinds of prayers, short prayers, long prayers, prayers of adoration to God, prayers of confession of sin, prayers of rejoicing over what he's done. We exhort you to hear what's happening there and use that as an example in your own prayer life. If you don't have one of those little prayer guides, grab one of those. In the front page, you'll see prayers according to heavenly priorities by simply praying the word of God. There's a whole page there. I don't know how to do that. Well, it lists it out to make it simple. It means we're praying prayers of adoration based on God's character and prayers of thanksgiving based on his work. Prayers of confession based on our rebellion and bringing prayers of request based on our desires. And yes, Jesus lived to or interceded while he was on the earth. But you know what Hebrews 7 says? Hebrews 7 says that Jesus right now, the resurrected Christ in heaven, lives to always make intercession for you. Let that sink in for a minute. That means for every single person here, Jesus is praying right now for you that you would be strengthened in your faith. That's remarkable. And in 1 John 2, we read that if any of us sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. It means that every time you sin, Jesus goes to the Father and says, look, I know that that Justin guy keeps getting sideways. I know he's got attitudes that are not the way you want. He's got words that are not the way you want, that are actions that are not Christ like. But remember, Father, I covered it all at the cross. Remember my righteous life when you look down at him. Remember, Father, that I paid it all, that his stain was deep, but my blood washed it white as snow. Friends, that is remarkable. He is your advocate, always interceding and ratcheting up a level when you sin. What a chief shepherd he is. Behold him. Consider how he is interceding for you with heavenly priorities. Yes, that brings you to wonder and awe. That the God of the universe, with everything that could be on his plate and on his job description, sees you. He says, I will intercede for you this morning. And as we start to wrap up and think about communion here, would you not just consider the crucifixion of Jesus Christ a bit and consider how he led, fed, and interceded, how he was leading, feeding, and interceding, how he led the way in humbling himself to pick up his cross and carry it for you, walking the road to Calvary, Humility embodied with a conviction that this is what I will do to make salvation available. He got on the cross, and now we are fed by his body. That's a healthy and hearty nutrient that his grace flows with his body broken and his blood poured out. And while on the cross, what was he doing? Interceding for mercy. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So friends, see the chief shepherd and find joy in his love for you and in the opportunity to follow him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your work of going to the cross, making atonement for sin, rising from the dead, and living to always make intercession for us. It's hard to wrap our minds around the wonder of who you are and what you do. But we ask this morning that by your grace you would help us to find joy in following you, to find joy in your church, to find joy in all circumstances, even when it seems impossible, knowing that you are the everlasting one. And you are with us, and you will never leave us, you will never forsake us, you will never change. Make these truths real in our hearts today, we pray, Jesus. Amen. If you're new with us, we're going to move towards a time of communion now where we'll pause for two minutes of silent reflection.